Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about bouncing back in time and putting right what we still get wrong, quantum leap style. We're here to give you everything you should have been taught at school and university. I'm your usual host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and fellow history nerd, Kyle Glover. Hello! Um, this week, ladies and gentlemen, we are back to World War II, and the darker side of World War II, to be precise. So we're going to be talking about some pretty grim stuff. So to do this, today we welcome Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Northumbria, Dr. Waitman Bourne. Waitman, Welcome to History Rage. Hey, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Feeling angry? I'm getting there. We're good. Good, yeah. good. I've seen you on Twitter being very angry about this. <laughs> I'm expecting results here. <laughs> um, so we're aware of you from um, last year, you were at the Chalk Valley History Festival. Uh, you've been at the We Have Ways Festival and uh, also appeared with Paul Woodage on his YouTube channel, who we've had on previously as well. However, for the benefit of our other listener, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are, your background, your particular field. I, I'm an historian. I focus mainly on um, the Holocaust and genocide, uh, all the happy topics. I'm obviously uh, American. Um, I did my undergraduate at West Point, and so I spent some time in the Army as a cavalryman before in my, in my previous life, before I became an academic. And and uh, I've written a couple books. My first one, which is probably the most relevant to this discussion, um, is about the participation of the Wehrmacht in the Holocaust in Belarus. Yeah. Um, and in that book, I was really interested in, you know, what are these soldiers doing at the actual ground level? I've also written a book on the Holocaust in Eastern Europe, and I just finished a manuscript on the Inovska concentration camp, which is um, in Lviv in Ukraine, which obviously is of increased importance um, perhaps nowadays. So yeah. um, that's that's basically what I what I do academically, I'm very interested in, in public history and in bringing, you know, these important topics um, from sort of the scholarly realm to the public realm um, and engaging yeah. with, with folks. So a, a podcast like this is, I think, great and super important. Excellent. You hear that, ladies and gentlemen? Our podcast is great, but then you're listening to it, so it should be. So, wait a minute, Holocaust and genocide studies. I have two questions on this, basically. Number one, what, what led you into that field? Uh, well, you know, I, 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 I'm just too happy as a person, I suppose. <laughs> and, and I needed to counter that with, with studying something grim. No, in all seriousness, you know, my family growing up, uh, we were always into history. We're the, kind of, we're the kind of family that, you know, we would go to a museum and we would systematically read every single thing, you know, every little caption of every little object and, and that kind of stuff. Mm. My dad uh, took me to Dachau when I was quite young, um, when we went to Germany for the first time. And, you know, I, I've always been interested in, in World War II and then and the Holocaust as well. And when I got out of the army in, in 2005 and had to sort of figure out what to do with the rest of my life, um, I really thought, you know, grad school would, would be the thing that I'd be interested in doing. 
and I sort of returned to the Holocaust as an interest. And I think one of the things that that interests me so much about it is simply trying to understand how human beings behave this way towards each other, mm-hmm. how they how they survive it, uh, how they resist it, all the all the sort of ways in which people interact with with an event as as sort of awful as as the Holocaust or genocide, yeah. Um, but one which does not take place on the moon, you know. I mean, it, it's it's something that that happens. Uh, you know, in, in, in regular life and people yeah. have to figure out ways to, to interact and to survive it and, and that kind of thing. And so I, I think that's really interesting and, and I'm not sure whether I'm any closer to sort of a, an answer or a universal theory of, of, of sort of genocide. But I think one of the things that's really fascinating about it is that, you know, because a genocide is generally aimed at, the extermination of entire group of people, really Mm. whatever it is you might be interested in from music, art, economics, propaganda, whatever, psychology, sociology, philosophy, it's all relevant because in some way it's all, it all plays a role in genocide. And so that's, I think that's a a really compelling reason to sort of, to focus on it because it gives you lots of sort of entry points to it. And, and the second question, this is one that we asked Alina when she was on back in series one as well, is that how do you day in, day out research this and not end up just hiding under your own duvet, unwilling to face the rest of humanity? I mean, how how do you cope with seeing that sort of thing day in, day out? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And it's only been very recently that I've seen... Uh, a number of scholars, for example, on Twitter talking about, you know, what, what is the toll as it were on researchers who research, you know, depressing topics. Mm. And I'm not really sure I have a a, a great answer. I mean, on the one hand, there's always a necessary level of sort of distance because I'm a scholar and I'm studying it and, you know, I'm looking at it in documents, which is not to say that one becomes sort of callous or inured to it, but, it doesn't poke through, I suppose, as much as it might for somebody else. Though I will mm. say, I mean, luckily, luckily, you know, in the in the first book, uh, when I was focused mainly on the perpetrators, you know, I didn't have to feel so bad for them, you know. And, and yeah, it's hard to have sympathy for them, really, isn't it? Yeah, and and when these German army units that have been that start out murdering civilians end up having to actually go to the front and fight people who shoot back. I don't have to feel particularly bad when they get annihilated, but, you know, certainly after I became a parent, you know, sometimes when I see that, when I read stuff about children or, you know, the, these moments where Janusz Korshak in Warsaw, who is a, a famous child psychologist and was in running the orphanages in the Warsaw ghetto, you know, he's marching the children to the, to the train, to Treblinka and trying to keep their spirits up. You know, I, that kind of stuff hits me differently yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not to say that, you know, you have to have children to to have empathy, uh, but it I think it just, you can't argue with the fact that once you have them, you have a different understanding of, of what that relationship is. So, you know, I mean, uh, I have other things that I do other than, <laughs> you know, <laughs> read about really horrible things and write about them. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's a question of balance and and maintaining, which sounds really weird, but maintaining a healthy relationship with graphic and traumatic topics well let's cheer you up now by allowing you to lower your blood pressure by getting a lot of things off your chest then so uh, (laughs) we've welcomed you onto history rage there's a chance to get your chance to get angry now Um, and you have alluded to what you're what we're going to be talking about but with all the emotion that you feel that it should muster waitman please tell us our listeners the one thing you wish people would just stop believing and just get over. I think if I put it in, in very basic terms, it's stop thinking the Wehrmacht is cool. Yes, he said it. Thank you. I mean, that's sort of, you know, like stop, stop obsessing over, you know, these, these Wehrmacht porn books, you know, like Panzer Aces and this kind of stuff where it's like, you know, how cool it was that this, you know, Wehrmacht Panzer unit shot up X number of t- enemy tanks uh, because you can't look at that in 
in the absence of the fact that this is a army marching for a genocidal regime. You know, and these are not the organization is not a good organization. I'm yeah. not. I'm not. I, I will. I'll be. I'll be clear at the outset. I'm not suggesting that every single person that served in the Wehrmacht, all 17 million men and women, were evil, or were necessarily all Nazis, or were necessarily all 100 percent gung ho on the, you know, searching for ways to carry out the Holocaust and, and other forms of genocide. But the bottom line is that that's what that army was fighting for. Yeah, that was its first goal. I, well, I mean, maybe, right? But in exactly the same way that uh, the Confederate Army in the United States was fighting to maintain the institution of human slavery. Now, that's that's just true, right? And and so you, I think that you just have to take that as as I'm sorry whether whether you like the lost cause and you want to think about who went up what hill and down one hill at Antietam, but if you're rooting for the Confederates. You're rooting for slavery. You can't ignore, yeah. Well, what the overriding thing was, and you uh, and it's like you know. And I think that a lot of the the sort of Wehrmacht fanboy sort of Verabu behavior it, it can't help but in some level root for the Germans. You know, I mean, like when you're when you're sort of when you're sort of excited about these, you know, these. Panzer units on the Eastern Front that are against all odds, you know, holding off massive amounts of Red Army soldiers. You got to ask yourself, why do you want them to hold off the Red Army? I mean, it's, it's a it's a problem. And it's yeah. like these people that that you often sometimes meet who say, well, you know, could Hitler have won if insert scenario? You know, yeah. and, and I always now I'm sort of really like it's a trigger and I'm just like, well, hang on. Why do you want Hitler to win? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, why is this a thing that you're interested in, in pursuing or devoting any intellectual time to? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So that the takeaway is the Wehrmacht is not cool. It's not something to root for. You know, I don't I can't believe I have to say this in the year of our Lord 2022, but they're not the good guys. <laughs> no matter how cool and innovating there they may be in in particular areas of tactics or whatever they're simply not the good guys so just for the non-world war ii types that we have in the audience all three of them give us a breakdown of the german military here because i'm i'm generally speaking a historian of crime i'm not really a i i I dabble in world war ii living history but i it's not really my area of absolute expertise but you've got you've got wehrmacht you've got well, yeah, you've got hordes of crime for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you've got the, uh, you know, we've got the SS, we've got the Wehrmacht, we've got here. You know, there's all these different terms banded around. So, so who are we actually talking about here, and what's the difference between them and other branches? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and and you know, the purists will say, and, the, and this is kind of sometimes like a a way to figure out who's the Verabu because they'll be like, oh, it's not the Wehrmacht, it's das Herr. And that's who you're talking about. So, like, mm. the Wehrmacht is in one definition sort of the armed forces writ large mm. of the Nazi state. Though quite often when we say Wehrmacht, and so in my book, when I say Wehrmacht, I really mean the army. Yeah. Because we have the Kriegsmarine and Luftwaffe are, are separate branches. But, you know, for example, if someone talks about the Wehrmacht and the Nazi state, you, you could also understand that to mean sort of the general military relationship. And then you have the Waffen-SS, which are not directly a part of the Wehrmacht, of Das Heer. They're not, they're not a part of the army, though they sometimes fight with the army. And, you know, when I'm talking about the crimes of the Wehrmacht, I'm usually not talking about the Waffen-SS because I sort of take that as a given. You know, <laughs> that, that they're, they're, they're going to be committing crimes and they, 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 they do frequently commit crimes. And you know, they're they're Himmler's attempt at at his own little private army. And and so he can push markers around the board and pretend like he's a big general with everybody else. Um yeah. and they're fanatical. But again, one of the other one of the offshoots, the, the corollary to the Wehrmacht is not cool, is the Balfinizes is certainly not cool. <laughs> but is even less cool than the Wehrmacht. But um so I mean it in the context of this discussion, you know, I think we can we can just take the Wehrmacht to be, 
you know, the larger armed forces, um, the Luftwaffe and the Kriegsmarine are involved in in war crimes and in the Holocaust, but often simply the, by the nature of the arm, they're not as involved yeah. as, as the army is. Yeah, we'd had uh, Victoria Taylor on to, to talk about the Luftwaffe and how, how that gets involved, particularly like crimes of the Fallschirmjäger in Crete. Thanks. That gives us that. That gives us that little bit of clarity then, because there's always the. You, you think, yeah, you're right. You think Waffen SS. That's that's where all your crimes are, uh, and yet it then leads over to this idea that that's there that the that the Wehrmacht isn't involved, and, and we see this an awful lot in living history. You just need to talk to those guys that go, yeah, well, well, we don't do all that because we're we're, we're just a Wehrmacht unit. No, you are up to your neck in this as well, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. As I understand it, this attempt to sort of rehabilitate the Wehrmacht and by extension, the the idea that they're kind of cool and kind of the goodies, that goes all the way back to Nuremberg, pretty much all the way back to the end of the Second World War. Um, so can you give us a brief history of the clean Wehrmacht and why it's nonsense? Absolutely. Um, yeah. How much time do we have? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, what do you want? So, I mean, one of the there there are lots of sort of ways in which this plays out, um, and and you're right in, in in pointing at Nuremberg, the Nuremberg tribunals as sort of the starting point, because one of the things that happens there is that the SS is termed a criminal organization. So, simply me- membership in that organization makes you a a a, a criminal in the context of Nuremberg in a way that the Wehrmacht is not. So there are plenty of generals who are tried for specific things mm-hmm. at Nuremberg and at the subsequent trials, but they're simple. The, the organization itself is not deemed to be a criminal organization. Because one of the things that Nuremberg does is it, it generates a list of all the various Nazi organs and things and, and determines which ones are sort of criminal by definition. Mm-hmm. And so there you already have, even in you know, 1946, 47, you have a, a beginning of a divergence. And what it, what it helpfully does for the Wehrmacht uh, veterans and, and war criminals is it allows them to continue, I think, in many ways, an attempt that they, they began during the war itself to say, look, you know, the SS does the bad things. And, and the Wehrmacht, what we did is we fought communism and we fought the Red Army, and to hold, hold the Red Army off, essentially. They don't really argue so much about fighting them at the Allies. You know, they're, they're trying to, to fight off the hordes from the East because look what they did once they got to Germany with, with the mass rapes and things like this. You know, and there, there, are, there are several reasons for this. Um, and it, they run along both. <laughs> I mean, it's not just the Germans that are guilty of this, by the way. Yeah. The, the Allies very much are, are interested in not pushing too hard against the Wehrmacht um, and against the, you know, you ha- and so the United States, for example, the U S army takes a bunch of these generals and essentially brings them over to the United States and other places and sorts of says, Hey, tell us everything you know about fighting the Soviets, because we're going to probably end up doing that at some point. Yeah. And by the way, you know, write down your memoirs essentially. And so you, that's how you get these absurdly titled things like lost victories, you know, by Monstein. Where it's mm-hmm. like, can you imagine this guy's this guy is a guy who fought for the Nazis and he's able to title his his memoir, which sells very well, Lost Victories, as if, <laughs> oh no, like it's so terrible that he lost. You know, this this lost cause thing that that we yeah. have in the US is 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 very much replicated here in the uh in the Wehrmacht. Um and so the, there's sort of some structural components of that where people like Melanthin and Guderian and Monstein and gosh, Galand, who is a raging Nazi, you know, and these other these other folks, you know, are mm-hmm. able to write these memoirs, which are of course quite sanitized, and don't ever really engage with uh, war crimes, atrocities, the Holocaust, with the exception of, of if they do, they blame the SS for it. You know, we were yeah. we're honorable men. You know, we we have the long history of the, the Prussian military, the German military, etc., and we don't do these kinds of things. It's, it's the SS that did that. No, oh no, the the Algemein SS behind the lines was running the concentration camps, and we knew nothing about that because we were just fighting off these communist hordes um, in the East. And, and it gets so bad that you have people like 
Liddell Hart, who are who are actually in the post-war period advocating for some of the worst convicted war criminals at Nuremberg to be pardoned and have their sentences commuted. I mean, it's 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 a, it's it's absurd. You know, he, wow. these are these are people like Einsatzgruppen commanders of the of the mobile killing squads that he's sort of oh well you know you know we need to sort of they've been dealt with too harshly. So so there's sort of that legal perspective. And then, of course, as if, if we follow the legal, the legal path a little bit, um, in 1949, Germany becomes, or West Germany becomes uh, independent again, and therefore all of the yeah. prosecutions of Nazi crimes therefore fall back under the German legal system rather than the, the Allied occupation zones. Um, but obviously, the German legal system has very little vested interest in going after veterans of the army. Because when you have 17 million men and Mm -hmm. women serving in an organization, that's a lot of fathers, brothers, uncles, sons, etc. And so it's one thing to say, well, these SS guys are just sort of abhorrent, bad extremists. It's another to sort of lend that brush to a much larger swath of the population with which many, many people will have some relationship. Um, and so the, yeah. and then pile on top of that, the fact that not a few of the judges in the post-war period were judges during the Nazi period and don't necessarily really want anyone to take a close look at that. And of course you have the additional problem of mm-hmm. a large number of the detectives and the police employees had done that job during the war or worse and have gone back to their regular job um, to the extent that you have, you know, a guy who was literally one of the Einsatzgruppen shooters, who when they finally arrested him, they discovered that he had his entire case file on his kitchen table because he had been he had gone back to his job as a policeman, and so he knew what everybody was investigating. So all of these things, in the legal sense, if we, if we think about the legal system as one way of a society coming to terms with with mass crimes. It's mm-hmm. a, it, it takes a very long time for the German judiciary, if it ever gets there, to really begin to take a look at these people. And so you don't have sort of a, a come to Jesus moment where everyone, everyone gets prosecuted for, for their participation. Yeah. Also, you know, one of the things where we're at now, your, your average listener, particularly for this podcast, probably knows more than some of the early prosecutors did about the scope of the Holocaust and particularly things that took place in, in the Soviet Union, which is inaccessible after, after the war in a lot of ways. And yeah. so there's also a, a period of time in which, you know, people are trying to simply understand what actually happened in order to know enough to start looking at some of these Wehrmacht units, these regular army participation and what they did. So there's, there's a lag there. And then of course the cold war. And so the cold war happens, the West, the yeah. West then faces the Soviet Union and says, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if we had some experience with some of these guys who had fought the Soviets before? Um, and you do have an, a large number of pardons for um, for senior Wehrmacht leaders, some of whom go into the Bundeswehr. And then you have, you know, I think, the more difficult thing to, to deal with is, you know, the family history part of this, which is that, you know, most Germans today will have someone that they can remember in their family mm-hmm who was in the Wehrmacht during the war. And I'm not suggesting that they're all, they all were criminals, but it does make it very difficult uh, as a society to come to terms with the fact that, that an organization that touched so many people was harnessed and, and an eager participant in, in genocide. And so, you know, these things all sort of come together and they percolate um, not least in Germany itself, which has, you know, there, there's these these sort of fan magazines even after the war, which which are essentially again some of this the, basically this Wehrmacht porn of you know battles and the Lancer fighting off the hordes and and the the Fallschirmjägers jumping on Crete and all these you know operational sorts of things without obviously any discussion of crimes and then of course everybody else latches onto that and like you know how cool it is that mm. the Blitzkrieg, that's a super cool thing. And so I think that that lends to to this problem 
and then, and then it continues all the way. I mean, I could go on, you know, miniature wargaming and computer simulate computer wargaming. And we'll talk about reenacting later. You know, all of these things that normalize this organization as, as well, you know, they're, they're somehow distinct yeah. from the Nazis, you know, in a way that they're not, um, which, which also, you know, for a long period of time, yeah. a lot of people viewed the Holocaust as distinct from the Second World War, when in fact it's not. Um, and so I think all of these things sort of combine to allow sort of an institutional and a, a public myopia about what the, what the German army did. To the extent that in, in 1995, there was this, this very famous Wehrmacht exhibition, which was uh, run by the, the Hamburg Institute for, mm-hmm. for Social History. And it, it caused all kinds of problems in Germany because it, for, the, for really the first time in a very public sense, there are scholars that are working on this, but in a very public sense, it lays out in detail through photographs, through personal albums, through letters home, how deeply involved the German army was in the Holocaust and how knowledgeable the members of the, of the Wehrmacht were in the larger sense of, you know, the, the, the gas chambers and the, and the camps and everything else. Yeah. And it caused, it caused real problems. You had people marching in the streets on both sides. The many of the children of the generation who were, you know, sort of rebelling as their parents or the liberal folks saying, you know, this is terrible. You know, our grandfathers were criminals. And then you have the other side, the far right, is saying our grandfathers, this is this is this is defamatory. Our grandfathers were fighting for for Germany and the fatherland. And to the extent that this thing got bombed at least a couple times by sort of these far right people that were just because it was wow. so stark. It was such a stark, you know, you know, some guys. You have a letter yeah. where the guy says, you know, I I see this that and other thing, and it's a it's right there in front of you. So, and, you know, these all these things I think have have combined to sort of lead us to a point where. Many people feel like they can separate these things, which which you really can't. Yeah, but you've got on one hand, you've got you, you've got the fanboys that kind of sanitize it, and then you've got the the actual kind of German researchers who, in that in that kind of family history sense, just just don't want to look at that. Yeah, we're we're just going to park that to one side and not talk about that. And you do that and layer that up enough, and uh, and you're going to end up with this idea. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So, so let's turn some of this mythology into actual fact then. Um, and, uh, you know, potential, potential warnings out to all listeners here, but give us some of the examples then of, of Fairmarked atrocities. Yeah. So let me start by saying, I, I want to talk about the Nazi genocidal project of which the Holocaust is a, is a part because there, there, there's more, if we, if we consider the Holocaust to be uh, the the attempted extermination of the Jews of Europe, um, that is a a subset of another system of genocide, as well as all these war crimes and atrocities. Um, Yeah. If I can just sort of butt in and ask those, my, my understanding is that the, the Jews are your identifiable scapegoat, but that that's basically stage one and had hitler managed to massacre all the jews that he wanted to then it would have moved on to slavs to a certain extent right and and when i say that the the holocaust is a subset of the nazi genocidal project and i'm not suggesting that it's wasn't wasn't as important it, they were the the jews were the first the first and foremost the enemy of the nazis and and they were the first on the list and they are the ones yeah. whose genocide 
and the attempted extermination was the most complete and to whom the most resources were devoted. Um, but as you mentioned, there are other groups out there that we'll talk about. So when, when we try to lay out in a relatively concise fashion the ways in which the Wehrmacht was criminal during the, during the Second World War, you know, without getting too much into, into you know, what other people have talked about, we can start at the, very, at the very highest level, the national level, and the strategic level. We have armament industries where slave laborers are being used, prisoners from concentration camps, both Jews, Jewish and non-Jewish. Um, we have, you know, the mm-hmm. slave laborers being used to, to build the West Wall on the, on the, in France. We have human hair from Auschwitz being used to line U-boat crewmen's boots to keep them warm as insulation. Um, so Ooh. just at the massive, at the, at the global level, you know, you have a, a, an economy that is run in some ways on slave labor, a lot of which is, is armaments as well. So we have sort of that, that sort of national industrial yeah. level. Um, and of course, you have in the concentration camps themselves, you have medical doctors from the, the military branches conducting experiments and sometimes in attempts to uh, create products useful for the military. Um, and that's not even stuff I'm going to talk about. If we look at, you know, some of the other ways um, in which the the military is deeply up to its neck in the Holocaust, we can start sort of small with the exclusion of Jewish serving members. So, you know, this is sort of the, you know, compared to the killing, it's it's obviously not as as severe, but, you know, it's discrimination. Um, It's removing people who who are LGBT or Romani or Jewish. So you have that sort of level of discrimination. Then you have, once we get into the war itself, particularly the war in the Soviet Union, some very obvious and clear series of atrocities. I'm going to start with the atrocities. Um, One of the things that I always like to bring up is the Soviet prisoners of war, which I think constitutes a a genocide in and of itself, because you do have a, a specific group of people that are targeted essentially for extermination. And to give us a sense of what that looks like, in the first year or so of the war, the Germans take around two or three million Soviet prisoners of war. And over the course of the war, two million of them die. Uh, to, to give another statistical, statistical sort of mm. depiction of it, more Soviet prisoners of war die in German hands every day during the Second World War, then Allied prisoners of war die in German hands during the entire war, which is which is pretty you know pretty crazy. And if you think about some death yeah. rates, the death rate of Soviet prisoners of war in German hands is around fifty seven percent. And just to give you a, a, a contrast to that, the death rate for Allied prisoners of war in Japanese hands, which is also not a picnic, um, was around thirty percent. So that's almost double. Yeah, I mean it's it's massive. It's 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 uh if I if I had the math correctly, it's something like eight times as many uh, American servicemen that were killed in action during World War II in both theaters. Because there's around four hundred and fifty some thousand American soldiers died in in combat, mm. and you're looking at two million Soviet prisoners of war just died in, in captivity or were, or were murdered outright if they were Jewish or if they were communists or commissars. Yeah. And even here you have a clean Wehrmacht, a sort of apology, you know, after the war, you have a, a lot of these people, if, if this question was ever asked, who said, Oh, well, you know, we took all these prisoners in these massive sort of pincer movements and we just weren't ready for it. We weren't, we didn't expect that we'd have so many. And, you know, we, we just didn't have the logistical supplies to, to maintain them, to feed them, to clothe them in the winter, you know, to give them first aid. And it's really unfortunate, but oh gosh, mm-hmm. uh, just it's unfortunate. We, we couldn't do anything about it. And of course, that's all bullshit because we have the documentation yeah. before the campaign starts in the Soviet Union where they know they're going to have these massive amounts of prisoners and they're sending out guidance like you may not, you have to, you, have to, you confiscate their medical equipment. You may not give them medical care you know uh we will not give them certain amounts of food certain kinds of food you know here is the diet they're, they're meant to subsist on and it's it's not sufficient to sustain life you have yeah. german army units saying we're not going to send you train cars because the pow's get them 
get them messy. So they're going to have to walk from Russia to Germany, you know, and, and then you have places like uh, the, the Soviet prison of war camp outside of Drozdy near Minsk, which is a hundred thousand people, a hundred thousand people in this camp, which is basically in a giant open field surrounded by a, a, a barbed wire fence. And that's it. And so you see these pictures yeah. from, from the Eastern front of, you know, Soviet prisoners of war living essentially like animals. They're digging burrows into the ground to try to have some, you know, um, safe place to live from the, from the elements and things like that. And disease, you know, tears through these camps. So we're not talking a, you know, we're not talking a camp of huts and garters. We're literally just talking an enclosure and make what you will of it escape from New York style. Yeah, absolutely. And and the the, the Drozdy camp, because it was one of the ones that I, I wrote about in my book, they actually built the fence line so that the stream that ran nearby was outside of the camp. Oh, good Lord. So the water source is actually outside of the camp. And and so then you have all these prisoners dying from, from exposure during forced marches, you know, just falling by the wayside or being shot when they couldn't keep up. And again, this is the German army that's doing this. These are yeah. the most ordinary of units that are doing this kind of thing. And in addition to that, you have the Commissar Befell, the Commissar Order, which was essentially saying, look, um, anytime you capture a, a Red Army political officer, they're to be shot out of hand, just executed immediately. And if they get back to a prisoner of war camp, they get separated out and executed there. Um, and of course, after the war, you have lots of these German generals saying, oh, well, yeah, you know, we got that order, um, but we didn't actually do it. But then there's a guy named Felix Romer, a great German historian, who did the painstaking work of essentially going back through all their documents and showing, no, actually, yeah, they did do it. And they reported it. Yeah. They reported how many commissars they had shot. And they passed that order down to everybody in their units. You know, you also have Einsatzgruppen units that are functioning in these prisoner war camps, uh, sorting out Jewish prisoners of war and murdering them as well. And so, again, you, so you get this two million number. Um, which is which is just an astronomical number. And then to think about another angle of this, you mentioned sort of the the if the Nazis win and if they're successful in the Holocaust, what next? The German military was very much involved in what's called the Hunger Plan, or excuse me, the Green and Brown Folders, which are these plans for the economic expropriation of the East. What are we going to do in Eastern in Eastern Europe? Once we conquer it. And the guy, uh, one of the, the quartermaster general of the army, uh, Wagner, is, is one of the chief authors of, this, of these documents, along with others, all of whom are in uniform for the most part of some kind. Mm-hmm. And they are essentially planning. They divide the Soviet Union up into two zones, a sort of food producing zone and a food consuming zone, which roughly corresponds to Ukraine and the south and the north. And, you know, they are planning, number one, to feed the German army from existing food stocks they capture, then to feed the German civilian population from said food stocks to prevent them from sort of feeling the war. And then anything that's left over will be used to feed what they consider to be, you know, worthwhile mouths in the East, i.e. people that are they're doing labor for, for yep. the Germans. And what this means is – and they put this in writing – that these policies of, of food transfer and food expropriation will, will probably result in deaths between 30 and 40 million people in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union. Yeah. 30 to 40 million people are going to starve to death. Entire cities are meant to be sort of starved out of existence because they're not useful to the Nazis. And, you know, the Slavs that are, that are kept alive are, are going to be re- reduced to a sort of subservient slave population. And you see some of this taking place in the battle of Leningrad, where starvation is used directly as, as a tactic. But this also, this, this policy is partially carried out elsewhere in the Soviet union in various cities where urban populations are starved out. And, and certainly the, 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 the German army is, is deeply involved through the countryside of, of, uh, you know, stealing food from villages pillaging them. And, and it, it may sound like nothing to us, but if you are a relatively poor peasant and the German army comes in and takes your cows and your pigs 
and your grain storage, you starve to death because mm. it's, you can't just go to supermarket and buy it. So that's all – those things are all before we get to some of the more systematic things. The, the German army uh, – there's a great book by Alex Kay called Empire of Destruction, um, which covers a lot of this quite heavily. They, ca- they, they continue and they carry forward the, German, the Nazi campaign against the physically and mentally handicapped into the Soviet Union. They are murdering the inhabitants of mental hospitals to use those hospitals for barracks or for army hospitals. Same thing with children. I mean, they're they are they're carrying this forward again. It's 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 something that is sort of less known, but but they do this. And then we get to the Holocaust itself, where in, in Poland in 1939, but then also in 1941, the German army is the the Einsatzgruppen, the 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 mobile killing squads that are murdering. Uh, the Jewish population are subservient to the Wehrmacht for everything except for their operational orders. In other words, the army, the German army agrees in writing through negotiations before the invasion to provide them with full fuel, food protection on the March uh, and ammunition um, with the understanding that the Wehrmacht or the, the excuse me, the Einsatzgruppen themselves are going to take their orders in terms of where they go and who they kill from the SS leadership. But very quickly, you find the German army doing much of the heavy lifting of a lot of these massacres. So, you know, when a, yeah. when a population of a small village or a town is the Jewish population is designated to be killed, very often it's the German army that that shows up first. Very often, by the way, it's the German army that has set up ghettos in these places before the SS ever get there. Um, they're doing the rounding up of the Jewish population. They're guarding them. They're marching them to the killing site. They're quite often doing guarding operations around the killing site. And as time goes on, they quite often become involved in shooting the Jews themselves. Um, And, you know, in places like Babi Yar, just outside of Kiev, where you have the largest, you know, mass shooting um, of the war, around 30,000 people, 30,000 Jews are murdered. First of all, that's at the behest of the Wehrmacht. They're the ones that ask for this as a reprisal action. Um, based yeah. on uh, some bombs that went off in in Kiev, and then you have they're being supported by engineers who are digging digging out the ravine. Again, you have German army folks that are participating in the shootings, um, and this is in one of the major shooting sites. But this happens also all across the Eastern Front. And then you have the anti-partisan war, where mass numbers of Jews are murdered under the guise of anti-partisan activity but these are actually civilians to the extent that, you know, this is one of those unfortunate anecdotes, you know, from the research. But when I was doing the research for the first book, um, I came across a discussion of an anti-partisan operation in which the, the documents are speaking about this piece of equipment called a minesweeper 42. And they're saying, you know, you need to go and get these minesweeper 42s. And then there's an after action report of these, these, these minesweeper 42s being used. It turns out a mine super 42 is a Russian civilian, often Jews who've been taken from the ghetto oh, good God. and they're being forced to march in front of uh, army units to clear minefields by, by contact. And so you have uh, at least one document that it sort of speaks approvingly of the fact that, uh, you know, it says something to the effect of, you know, four or five mine super 42s were destroyed, but luckily none of our soldiers were killed in this operation. And so they're marching human beings, you know, in front of, into minefields um, as a ways of clearing them, you know, and then, you know, we have on and on and on, you know, the, the mass yeah. killings, the reprisal actions, um, the, the, the war crimes on the Western front as well with places like Orador, Malmedy, you know, the murder of civilians, the murder of prisoners, the common, the commando order where any, Essentially, any Allied special operations troops are to be shot out of hand as well, you know, and on and on and on, you know, and the Wehrmacht is deeply involved in all of these things. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pause this portion of the rant to, to sort of bottom line up front or too long didn't read. The, the defining factor about whether or not the German army gets involved in atrocities and the Holocaust in my view, is opportunity, not motive. So if we think about it, that, that the army is, and the military writ large, as a system, 
is conditioned to to participate in these atrocities. And it's only if they don't have an opportunity to do that that they don't get involved. But when they do have yeah. an opportunity or when they're asked to do it, they do. So it would be impossible to talk about this subject without touching on reenactment, a subject that you've been quite vocal on. So do give us your take on the reenactment scene. Let me just, number one, distinguish between what I would consider to be a living historian and a reenactor. Yes. Because I think they're different things. I think a living historian is someone who educates and who really, you know, has a pedagogical thrust and the knowledge of what they're doing is informed by scholarship. And and I think living historians, let me be very clear here, have an absolute role in public history. And they're 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 useful people and they're 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 quite helpful. And and I don't want to tar them with the same brush I'm about to tar the reenactor yep. community. Because you're with. you're talking to two of them at the moment. No, I know I, yeah. I know <laughs> I know exactly who I'm talking to. Yeah. Um, which is why I say, you know, living historians are are great. You know, they, they, they do lots of great things. They provide lots of great context. And they have this pedagogical, in my mind, this pedagogical thrust of we, we are here to teach somebody something. Whether they're war reenactors or people, or rather war, war living historians or people dressed up like 18th century servants or whatever, they are there to present some kind of educational point. And it's usually informed by some level of, of study and professionalism. On the other side, sometimes you have the reenactor who is cosplaying or living out a fantasy of some kind. Yeah. And it's not always bad. I'm not saying it's always bad to dress up like some whatever you want to dress up like and go out and, and, and do it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be cool to, to do get a, put on armor and be a knight and, and that that's fine. I'm not I'm not kink shaming people that want to do that. It's totally fine, right? Um, we all have hobbies and they're all nerdy and they're all weird and geeky and that, that's that's fine. And I'm not I'm not suggesting otherwise. What what the problem I have with the Wehrmacht reenactors is okay. It's it's essentially a waterfall of choices, right? Choice number one. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to decide what to do with my money and free time. I'm going to do a war. I want to be a war reenactor. Okay, cool. That's choice one. Choice two, what, which side should I choose? Well, I have options. I could be the allies. I could be the Americans. I could be the British. I could be the French. Or I could be the bad guys. I'm going to choose to be the bad guys. Okay, there's choice number two in the waterfall. Now we're starting to get into, like, what's going on here, terrain. Okay, I'm going to yeah. be the bad guy. I'm going to be the Germans. Which Germans should I be? Well, I'm not going to be sort of the 112nd Mesquite Repair Battalion. I'm going to be the Waffen SS. Okay, mm. now we're starting to get into yes. what are you doing? Why are you making these choices? <laughs> what are you thinking? Why are you continuing to make these choices of being the worst of the worst? And then you have the final, and I'll be quiet, but you have sort of the, the, the excuse that's often made is, oh, well, you know, I'm just here to present the their side of things or present, you know, what it was like to be a German soldier, right? And and how are we going to learn about the MG42 if we don't have people dressed up like German soldiers, right? And I would argue, number one, that someone dressed up like a Tommy could easily explain the MG42 and why it's different from, you know, a, a Bren gun. Mm-hmm. You don't need to – just be, you, yes, you can explain why the weapon systems are different and, and how that impacted war without going the full nine in the other direction, right? Secondly, of course – Portraying those guys, particularly the worst of them, is normalizing. It just it just is. When you walk around a, a, a festival and you have the SS guys, their little encampment next to the you know Revolutionary War people, it just makes it seem like that's okay, that's normal. And then yeah. the third part that, that that you will often have them say is, well, look, you know, just because just because the Second SS Division committed the atrocities at Orador doesn't mean that my unit is is going to do that. It's like, okay, sure. And then they'll say, well, you know, then there's the idea of ignorance. Well, maybe they just don't know. And I think this is the this is the biggest bullshit argument because these people and, and, and I'm including you guys in a, in a certain sense in mm-hmm. this. You know, when you get involved in any hobby, you know, you, you spend a lot of money on it and yeah. you do a lot. Of, you want to know as much as you can. 
to be as authentic as yeah. possible, right? And so how is it possible to do even the smallest modicum of research about the Wehrmacht or the Waffen-SS or some of these units? Like a guy a guy on Facebook, on one of these, these reenactor groups, wanted to join a police battalion 316 reenactor yeah. group. Police battalion 316 murdered Jews as its job, right? So again, how do you, as a reenactor person, do even the smallest amount of research into your your portrayal, your uniform, your unit without stumbling across the fact that, oh, by the way, yeah. there's this thing called the Holocaust and the Waffen-SS and they were terrible and they committed all these war crimes. You know, like you have to know this. And so therefore, and I'm coming to my, my closing here, my climax, therefore, <laughs> right, it means that either, number one, you're kind of a fan of all that stuff. And there are plenty of alt-right kind of neo-Nazi types that do do this sort of thing. So yeah. either you're a big fan, yeah, yeah. either you're a big fan of it, or yeah. it's not a deal breaker for you. And both of those outcomes are not great. So that's yeah. why you shouldn't I've, reenact Fairmont stuff. I've, I've often thought with um, with that sort of thing, and we see this a lot with um, the kind of the kind of forties weekend set more than say the history festival set that that you get right. It is fun to dress up and go and spend time on a railway. There is nothing wrong with doing that whole nineteen forties cosplay thing. Absolutely, it is fun. Stop trying to claim it's educational. It isn't. It's fun, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're doing that as the Waffen SS or the Wehrmacht, then you've got to come to terms with the idea that it's fun to be the Germans, and I want your explanation as to why. That is basically where I yeah, stand. Or the Gestapo. I mean, I, there are, there are, I have documented instances of people choosing to be the Gestapo in, in like the full black coat and everything. You know, and it's like, as you say, you know, it's, it's, you have to be understanding of, of the, of what it is that you're doing because I think the best way to think about yeah. it again is that waterfall of choices you're making at, at every moment. No one, unlike the people that were actually in the Wehrmacht, many of them, no one is making you do this. Yeah. You are choosing to do yes. this. Yeah. You are not following yeah, orders. Exactly. You are making that choice. You? And you're making a series of choices that usually yeah. are worse and worse and worse. <laughs> And if the people that are actually on trial at Wehrmacht have better defenses than you, yeah, good God! I mean, at least many of those guys were conscripted. You know, I mean, like, you know, yeah, they didn't have to go and fork out two thousand crowns. I mean, few few Wehrmacht soldiers would say, you know, what I want to do is take a weekend and go to Ukraine and yeah, fight the Red Army. You know, I mean, like they, you know. this is not something that they were many of the, at least the many of the rank and file were, were super excited about. I mean, I can't imagine what a Wehrmacht veteran today would think if he saw these people dressing up like this, he might be like, what are you doing? Like, why are you, you know, as, as someone that was formerly in the military, I can't think of anything less fun than going out in the woods and getting drenched and cold and freezing and eating crap food again for the fun of it, you know, cause I did that. So like, <laughs> It, you know, well, you did it for the money, not the fun. <laughs> so we may we, we mentioned in the earlier question that this goes all the way back to Nuremberg, and we, we're going to kind of close off now with, with bringing back to Nuremberg. We're all aware of kind of the bigger name trials, but what I would say is, who is who is the big winner in the Wehrmacht? Who got away with it? Who should have been hanged that basically wasn't? The, the short answer is a lot of people, we probably don't even know their names, you know, because based on, you know, all of the different ways in which the Wehrmacht was complicit, there are lots of people out there who should have been punished at, at some level, mm-hmm. not necessarily executed, but there are just so many people who got away with it in that sense because they remained essentially anonymous because the system didn't go after them, you know? And so in my book, you know, as a, to sort of return the tone to a little more serious academic tone, you know, but like from my perspective, it's, it's a lot of the, the ordinary normal people, not the high ranking people that I would focus on who got away with it. 
the numbers of trials of people who were like privates, sergeants, lieutenants in the Wehrmacht are, are very few and far between. And most of them come about in sort of happenstance. And I'm going to tell the story because it's a, it's also hilarious. I don't get a lot of chance to tell hilarious stories in my line of work, but it also, it also shows sort of how tendentious and how, how you really had to rely on luck for these kinds of people to come to justice. So the story is essentially this, that there is a uh, Vermont veteran. It's like 1959, 58, I think he's living in Darmstadt and he and his wife got, uh, you know, get separated. And so because it's that period of time, they can't really afford to really move out. So she moves into the apartment above him. So they're living right above each other, which is, and they divided the kids in half. So like he got one kid and she got the other kid. And they basically got into it because one of the other of the spouses was sort of hogging the good clothes and wasn't giving the clothes to the kid, other kid. And, and that this caused all kinds of issues. So this former Wehrmacht soldier goes to the, the police chief and the mayor and basically informs on his wife and says, you know, my wife is not, is not pulling her weight in the sort of separated relationship with the kids and, and we're not getting the, you know, et cetera, complaining mm-hmm. about it. And so you have this moment and I know all of this cause it's in the documents, the mayor, the police detective or police chief and the husband, the Vermont guy come back to the apartment to confront the mother. And it, it devolves rapidly into a shouting match. And she leans out the window and says something, 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 you Jew murdering bastard. And and they're all they all kind of run away, and then this guy goes to the police, and essentially files a charge against her for defamation, for calling him a Jew murdering bastard. So the police call him in, and he's like, "Look, I'm not. I I didn't murder Jews, because I aimed at a diff- I aimed away, when I was told to shoot them." Right. And so, and there and the police chief, the police detective is kind yeah. of like, "Wait a second go back. And so then the guy has to explain how he was he was in this unit that did in fact murder large numbers of Jews during the Holocaust. And then this is how the entire investigation that eventually leads to a trial unravels and leads to the leads eventually to the company commander and the company first sergeant in this one unit you have a trial in 1953 in which they both are convicted and the mm-hmm. the, the private is let off because they essentially mm-hmm. believe him that he didn't they didn't aim at the person he aimed away. And missed on purpose. But anyway, the point being, we would never know any of that if it hadn't been for this weird happenstance and the complete lunacy of this guy thinking it'd be a great idea to draw even more attention yeah. to the fact that he had been involved in, in killing Jews during the Holocaust. So the people that get away with this are, again, these people, the little people, lots of, of people who might have you know only killed one person, two people, three people, or abused people. I mean, these are the and, and that that's also, by the way, to in, to include lots of Einsatz group and people that shot lots of people. Um, yeah. But we just, you know, the, the legal yeah, systems just, just never held uniform, them to it. They just put their uniforms away and went back to the farm, went back to the factory and lived out their lives anonymously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Whiteman. That's given us that's given us plenty to work over in an area that many of us would rather not look too deep into. So, Well, thanks for having me. It's very it's very rare to find somebody that wants you just to rant at them for for forty five minutes. So. <laughs> You're more than welcome to come and rant at us again as well, ladies and gentlemen. If you'd like to know more about Waitman's work, then you can follow him on Twitter uh, at Waitman B, um, and you'll no doubt be able to hear him speak at the We Have Ways Fest in July. So another plug for our rival podcasters. There, you can uh, you you can look out for either of the two books, and uh, we'll put links to them in the show notes. So. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as we've enjoyed confronting this dark subject. And Waitman, thank you very much for bringing us your rage. Yes, brilliant episode. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe to us on Patreon as your £5 per month can get you episodes up to three months ahead of the usual release and weekly. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. So from all of us here at History Rage, until next time, thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.